It's indeed a great pleasure to be in your most distinguished university and uh, faculty and students. Um, I have actually quite a few friends in the International Relations Program, and I don't know any of them are here. Uh, sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. But anyway, um, I just came back from Oxford this morning, and I was very happy that people were interested in this book. I had some good discussion there also. Let me start off by saying why Pakistan is such an important country. Pakistan is important because it is 185 million people today. It's about sixth largest country. And it's going to be 300 million people in another, by 2050. And it will become the fourth largest country in the world. So imagine if China and India were not next to Pakistan, it would be considered as a big state. But unfortunately, it's kind of a little dwarfed by these bigger states, so people tend to compare them, uh, compare uh, in a relative sense. Peace within Pakistan and between Pakistan and its neighbors are crucial for global security, we know that. Where do I sort of come into this picture here? I was working on a book on South Asia's big states, and I realized that most works on Pakistan describe what is going on there. Indeed, there are quite a few successful uh, journalistic works. You must be familiar with uh, Carletta Gaur's new book and your own ambassador Hakani's new book, you know. Um, Anatol Levin is a kind of mixture of uh, journalism and uh, scholarship. They've done very well. But I must say, none of them explains Pakistan, why it is the way it is. It is one thing to go there and interview people, meet people, and then come back and say, ah, so many people are getting killed, you know, all that. I must give you a little example of uh, Carlotta Gall was interviewed by NPR, National Public Radio, in, in the US. And I happened to be in my kitchen and listening to her. After she describes all these things, she was asked, so why do they do all these things? You know, I, I guess she, they were referring to the ISI. And her response was, violence is their, or use of chaos is their modus operandi. The only way that they know. So I was kind of taken aback. You know, that's a very crude, simplistic understanding. I mean, a lot of people are violence in all over the world. But it is not clear why violence is used, if it's used in the context that she was referring to. So I am puzzled by the fact that social scientists have ignored this country, this crucial country, and um, of course economists write about but a narrow spectrum of it. So that is where I think we need a bigger picture of why Pakistan is still so insecure, other than the simple explanations of, you know, next to India and all that stuff. But it is more than that, and I am interested to draw from historical sociology, international relations, comparative politics, military history, strategic studies, all these fields, I have some background, and I'm trying to provide an explanation which I don't want to claim the only explanation or the final explanation <laughs> because I want it to be tested and contested. Uh, other people should do more of this sort of explanation. This morning I was given a counter explanation of internal politics as the source of uh, uh, the explanation. We can talk about that. I am interested in long-term factors. I am not that upon what's happening in Waziristan right now. You know, I mean, I'm more interested in why countries end up the way they do. And uh, I want to make a disclaimer here. I'm not here to blame Pakistan. I'm not trying to take a side to the India-Pakistan conflict because, you know, it's a very polarizing subject, as you know. My objective is, as a social science researcher, trying to understand a puzzle. And that puzzle has immense policy implications. And I do have a little bit of experience in the region. For the last 25 years, I've been traveling and talking to people, participating in many track two meetings involving Pakistanis, Indians, and uh, uh, Americans to some extent. That's sort of a map of Pakistan. My starting point is the European experience of war and state making. And that's what really puzzled me into this sort of intellectually. In comparative sociology, there is a very powerful literature, as some of your own faculty here have done excellent work on this subject, war and state making. And that literature is very useful here, I think, at least as a starting point. The question is about 
why in European context some states became strong through the war making process, while others did not. So whether we can apply that to the developing world and see whether that could be a starting point here. Charles Tilly makes his famous statement, war made the state and state made war. And that is sort of the Tillian logic, and a lot of sociologists debate about it, the process through which <coughs> European states became strong. Some of them did not make it, but many did. And it was a multi-state process, at least in the European context. And the starting with the elimination of external rivals, suppression or pacification of internal enemies, extraction of resources through taxation. That's a very important point in the Pakistani context I will talk in a minute. Strengthening states made social pacts with powerful social groups that offered them legitimacy, legitimacy of the state. And then state used the capital, the money they accumulated for strengthening themselves vis-a-vis -vis internal groups or external groups. Now this doesn't mean that all European states that engaged in war making succeeded in state building. Some were indeed destroyed and uh, others uh, changed their position over a period of time. And there are quite a few cases. In fact, if you go, uh, many of you probably look at the maps of Europe uh, from, let's say, 1400 to uh, 2014, you see the borders change and you know, quite a bit of uh, changes taking place over a period of time. But one thing is clear that it is not a guarantee that war making or war preparation will make a state stronger. Austria-Hungary, Byzantium, of course, starting with Burgundy, Soviet Union, all of them destroyed themselves through this process. And the last two, the Austria-Hungary and Soviet Union, were great powers. Yet war and war preparation have been a very important element of state formation, state strengthening in Europe. That we cannot dispute. The question is, under what conditions and how uh, that happens, happened. Many people who study developing countries try to apply this model to developing world, although Chile was very clear that uh, this may be so generous. It cannot be applied to the developing world. Yet people try. In the African context, um, Jeffrey Herbst did an excellent book, arguing that African states never experienced wars of conquest and low population densities and abundant vacant land gave them the opportunity to focus on urban centers, leaving their hinterland underdeveloped. Miguel Centeno argues the relative weakness of Latin American states is because of their incapacity to wage big interstate wars, and therefore they ended up with uh, civil wars. I find two problems here, I, some of you probably are not uh, that upon this issue methodology here, which is circularity problem that imply original weakness did not allow the states to wage big wars because and then they turned out to remain uh, weak states. A second criticism is the assumed inevitability of war and state making without really looking at the ruinous consequences of war and war preparation. Now the winners of World War I, for example France, weakened after winning World War I. Britain, this great country, also weakened after winning World War II. Indeed, the biggest example is the Soviet Union which spent so much energy into war preparation only to disband itself. So I kind of make a big argument here, especially in the post-World War II period, war making has become even more counterproductive for state capacity. Excessive focus on national security can destroy a state. And it's sort of a starting point here. Instead of using coercive capacity, states need to use integrative power, especially if the state is a multi-ethnic, multi-sectorial kind of state. And that the state elite has to invest in their people if they ever want to integrate their countries. Now you know where I'm kind of take you to on the Pakistani context. Now, I'm not claiming all war may or war preparing states destroyed themselves. Indeed, there are some examples, very powerful examples of states that did well through this process. And that I include Korea and Taiwan. And what did they do differently from, say, Pakistan? They became what they call developmental states. 
And that is the story that I will talk in a few minutes, the comparative sort of thing. Now I want to talk a little bit about Pakistan. Some of it, if you are originally from Pakistan, may not be very pleasant, but unfortunately I have to say it. <laughs> unfortunately, the development of Pakistan has been one of a, a, a highly checkered. And you look at uh, the wars, the four of them, military rule, and several crises, by the way, military rule over half of its existence. Democratic interludes are hybrid systems. Even today, when uh, Mr. Sharif wanted to visit Delhi, you see the military was trying to put a little veto over his decision. Luckily, or from my perspective, it is luckily that he stood ground and went there. Now, we don't know what is going to happen out of it, but at least he's trying. That's an interesting development. Now, Pakistan has been extraordinarily concerned with security and military balance with a country that is uh, almost eight times larger than it in many parameters today, four times before Bangladesh was liberated. Of course, some of the statistics that, that you know are grim. Uh, before I talk about some silver lining, of course, it appears on many of the state weakness uh, indexes, uh, on many of the performances. And, um, and the sectarian killings, that I don't need to repeat all that, it's not that pleasant to hear. But one of the figures that is important for my purposes here is that its position in the Global Competitiveness Index, uh, 124 from 144 countries. And also, it is one of the least globalized economies uh, in terms of trade and investment. But it does possess 110 nuclear weapons, and now there is a plan to develop what you call tactical weapons and deploy them in a very volatile border. Which I think we can discuss the dangers of that particular position. Some silver linings. Obviously, the democratic transition is a very impressive thing for Pakistan. First time you have a civilian government transferred power to another civilian government. And the military at least is remaining in the barracks, although there are a lot of rumblings you hear now with the uh, trial of uh, Musharraf and uh, peace with India, uh, approach toward the Taliban, etc. And there is some efforts with the European Union deal for a trade integration, and the U.S. Um, includes trade as first time, by the way, part of its strategic dialogue, and something that I find the American policy very problematic. But the prognosis is highly uncertain, as we don't know where the Taliban will take us in terms of Afghanistan, or the unraveling of that state, and where the other parties in this conflict, India, Russia, etc., are they going to go? That's just a starting point. I am interested in two big puzzles. One is, why does Pakistan remain a weak state despite an intense focus on national security for such a long period of time? The second question is, why has its elite pursued policies that have not brought long-term security, prosperity, or even integrity, integ integration of the state. Now, if you run a company or a corporation and uh, you realize you don't make profit, you change your strategy. Otherwise, you go bankrupt. Countries don't go bankrupt easily because there is uh, international law doesn't allow. Secondly, there is somebody there out to help you if you are going through difficulties. Now, these are big puzzles. The question is, and then you use the literature on war and state building, and you realize that maybe there are some patterns and processes taking place in the Pakistani context that would be very helpful here. I am interested in the big answer to this problem or challenge, intellectual challenge, and I come up with one that is a very structural, big picture argument, and the other one is more of an agency-driven, that is leadership. And I argue that the peculiar geostrategic circumstances uh, are the structural factor, and secondly, the ideas that the Pakistani elite hold, and I call them hard realpolitik. They influence each other, and I do think that an eclectic approach is better than one or the other. Many Pakistani, um, I try to talk to uh, cab to, uh, drivers when I take a, a, a cab in uh, New York City or uh, even in uh, uh, cities here and often you ask the question, so what do you think the problem in Pakistan, difficulties back at home? Invariably the answer is a problem with the outsider, the others did it for us sort of thing. I'm sure some of you also agree to that kind of an argument 
But that's one side of it. I don't want to dismiss that. But the ideas of how to tackle the problem, how you deal with these problems, are very crucial here. I don't want to argue that Pakistan did not face any threats and conflicts. I'm not arguing that Kashmir conflict did not matter. I'm not arguing India's behavior did not matter. But countries facing big rivalries and territorial disputes have faced it differently. And that's where the elite's ideas and strategies, that's grand strategy matters. And that is why I'm trying to say that we cannot look at one aspect alone. We want to understand a big puzzle like Pakistan or Pakistan's development. I developed a concept called geostrategic curse. Now this may sound a little crude, actually it is quite similar to foreign aid curse or um, uh, resource curse, oil curse. You know, you may know that literature essentially saying that if you have too much of oil, too much of resource, uh, or too much foreign aid, countries have a less incentive to develop uh, in the proper ways. So I argue that Pakistan has been simultaneously blessed and cursed with geostrategic importance for great powers and their allies, not just America, not just China, but of course Saudi Arabia to a series of countries and international institutions are part of that mix. And these have brought enormous resources to Pakistan, and we can say it's as per G GDP, it's not that big, but as per the governmental revenues or the kind of tidying over over a period of time, and weapons, and this has been, I argue, has been a curse on Pakistan. It has prevented Pakistani elite from engaging in much needed reforms or transforming their economy and their system in a positive direction. So this participation in geopolitical competition brought billions of dollars and modern weapons and the internal extraction that you find in the European context or in the East Asian context and innovation international trade have been relatively absent, except for a brief period under Ayub Khan, which many Pakistanis I know for sure really dream back and say how nostalgic that period was. So indeed Pakistan has missed out quite a bit and I call this um, a curse because it can also be a blessing. And uh, the two countries that have made it a curse are Pakistan and Egypt. i tell you why. The... So these are a set of problems associated with, I'm drawing from the literature on resource curse and foreign aid curse, associated with um, uh, too much of that encourages authoritarianism, hinders the development of a strong middle class, creates uh, incentives for patent-client um, relationships, no long-term investment in productive sectors, because the allies will bail you out if you are in a difficult situation, as it is happening right now. You probably noticed the World Bank, IMF, Saudi Arabia all gave quite a bit of money. Um, now that is part of the reason I think of the economist is sitting in front of me. Pakistan economy is doing reasonably well. In a very short term period, I don't think it is a sustainable growth or without substantial improvement in uh, foreign trade and other things. One of the biggest manifestations of Pakistan's difficulty to extract resources internally is the tax collecting of the state. The state is one of the weakest tax collectors in the world. New York Times reported in July 2010 out of more than 170 million, fewer than 2% paid in income tax, making Pakistan's revenue from taxes among the lowest in the world and notch below Sierra Leone as a ratio of tax to gross domestic product. So the argument was that 10 million tax Pakistanis should be paying income tax, not even 2.5 million were registered. Now I read a report by the former director of Pakistan's state bank, uh, uh, and he made an argument that indeed the number has come down, now it's 0.7% pay any taxes. This I think is an incredible number when, it, when it's actually India also, it's something like 3% really pay taxes, but Indian tax to GDP rate is something like 15% right now. It's going a little better than Pakistan, but it's not that great either. <coughs> but Pakistan does have other taxes, as you know, it has got uh, 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 excise duties, different duties, but even with all that, it's only 9% of the GDP is collected in taxes, indirect and direct. Pakistan also receives foreign remittances, a substantial amount, which by the way can also be a curse if you want to argue that if that money doesn't go into the rightful expenditures, it can create uh, uh, you know, luxury buildings and buildings and other things not in terms of productivity. 
And of course, this is a life-sustaining thing for many families, so I don't want to say that it is a bad thing, but the question is where the money is going to. Between 1960 and 2012, Pakistan received something like $73 billion from bilateral, multilateral sources. U.S., 30% of it, Japan, UK, Germany, International Development Association, World Bank, IMF, all major sources. Between 2002 and 2010, Pakistan received more than $2 billion per year from the U.S. Now, Pakistan's GDP has been growing as well. So one can argue that as a percentage of GDP, this is not a big money. But as a percentage of the state's revenues and the state's, uh, given that it doesn't get much money through taxation, where does the Pakistani state get the money, especially in the, in the context of the big military spending? And I do want you to be aware that one of Pakistan's greatest difficulties is the interaction between the military elite and the landed gentry, or you call the kind of uh, quasi-feudal uh, system that you, are, you have in existence. You must be familiar with Aisha Siddiqui's uh, very powerful book, Military Inc., Incorporated. And as you know, military is given land grants and certain benefits, and they have become a land-owning class. I'm talking about the top-tier military. And they are members in all key businesses, as well as directors, etc. Now, this is a bit like Wilhelmine, Germany, in a very poor country. Unfortunately, it does not help. The biggest cocktail for underdevelopment is military and the landed gentry are together. They have no incentive to reform. Land reforms are absolutely needed for uh, agrarian country to prosper. And the military could become the source of innovation. Maybe they followed the Korean model or the Taiwanese model, or even the Chilean model, you know. <laughs> Pinochet is somebody who we don't like, but the fact that he did bring prosperity to Chile. So I argue that this is one set of structural factors that one can look into, but it's not enough. You need to look at the ideas, the grand strategies that the elite um, hold over a period of time. I am kind of a rationalist in terms of ideas, you know, I don't know those who are familiar with international relations, we have a big school now for constructivism, we talk about ideas are so important, but I think the best thing is to just uh, look at what ideas elite people who are in charge hold, what kind of causal roadmap they have, and whether that uh, embedded institutions, how that affects outcomes and agendas, whether they put blinders on people reducing the number of alternatives. I'm using uh, Goldstein and Cohen's approach on this one, foreign policy behavior. So the last one actually applies to almost every country, every decision-making unit. Just think of the George Bush team on the eve of uh, the Persian Gulf, or the Iraq invasion. It's like very difficult to look at alternatives when you are stuck in a kind of mindset. Now, the problem is that ideas are evolved over a period of time. Very hard to change these ideas unless there are major crises that upset the ideas or some uh, decision-making group, small groups emerge as powerful uh, units, as in the Gorbachev team, you may recall a small team, or in many of the cases in Brazil, in all the Latin American cases that transformed, that stood very strongly for transformation and change. Unfortunately, in Pakistan's case, that hasn't happened. Uh, we know that there are some economists in the current government, but I don't know how much power they have. I want to talk a little bit about the dominant ideas the Pakistani elite has been pursuing. Now, I draw a lot from the work of Stephen Cohen, those of you who are familiar with his workbook called The Idea of Pakistan. And he argues, actually, I'm using some of his uh, lines here that um, it is indeed an elite that has an operational code and uh, each one of those points that are uh, raised here. I argue that this uh, mindset is driven by what you call a realist, hard realist Hobbesian worldview, which emphasizes a strong national security state founded on military might. Of course, there are a lot of reasons for that. We can talk about it later on. And all the things realists talk about, self-help system, relative gains, national security and territorial security prior to all goals that the country uh, has, or trade and economic welfare are secondary. 
only to help the national security state. So some people call it a garrison state, but it is a, a worldview that coming out of the real politic nature of uh, state function, state strategy. Extreme conflict is the nature of interstate politics, and the preservation of the state from predatory adversaries is the primary function of the state. And international relations is a distributive or zero-sum process. And here I think the Lockean idea is that rivalry exists, but unlimited or violence or fear of denying sovereignty is not the important thing. Or Kantian ideas, kind of philosophy uh, ideas, settlement of conflict without war, need not enter the picture at all. And so Cohen argues that Pakistan's decision-making elite is basically 500 strong elite. They may change period of time, of course there's a rotation of elite. But they all share this idea or ideational world what he calls operational code. These have undergone certain changes over a period of time, but much remain the same. Armed forces are the model for Pakistani society as a whole, as they are seen as selfless, disciplined, obedient, and competent. Deep-rooted social or economic reforms, including land reforms and universal literacy are too risky for a state that is already unstable and pressed from the outside by dangerous enemies. These ideas, by the way, some of them are drawn from British colonial ideas. So this is one thing that the South Asian elite, people don't read about history and the, how the British controlled us. We have no clue how much they influenced our thinking, our strategic culture even today. The idea of keeping Afghanistan as a, vassal, uh, as a strategic depth or a vassal state it was very much similar to the buffer state idea of the British strategies to prevent the Russians from taking over um, India. And some of the Indian behavior vis-a-vis -vis the uh, Chinese border are quite a bit how the British looked at uh, security in that period. Anyway, a book can be written on it, how strategic culture has evolved in South Asia and the impact of the British um, thinking. Uh, and even keeping some parts of the regions as weak and poor. Uh, tell you an example of uh, why the Indians have been developed northeast. Anyone has an answer to that? Huh? Why is that India's northeast is not economically developed? Not because, yeah? It's very remote, and <laughs> that's, that's one issue. And the predominant change on the political politics of the center. Yes, but it is to prevent the Chinese invasion. If I say that, you're going to, <laughs> you're going to laugh at me. <laughs> if you have roads developed properly, if you have a good, uh, you know, economic base there, the Chinese may come in with their tanks. Now it's slowly changing, by the way. <laughs> but it is unbelievable the influence the bureaucracy gets from these sort of ideas that other people have developed. The Brits had the same ideas about the border regions should be kind of impassable so that, you know, nobody will come easily, you know, kind of. Anyway, I, I don't want to go too much into it since... Uh, but the Indians are suffering as a result of that because if only the developers will be loyal to the state. And this applies, by the way, in Pakistan on its Afghan border and uh, Baluchistan, etc. Now, conflict with India is natural, and to avoid defeat, a strategic parity is needed. The India challenge is major, besides differential, but you can bridge this through a strategic approach, alliances with great powers, and maybe weapon systems such as uh, nuclear weapons. I want to show you a little bit on the material power capabilities and the difficulties Pakistan experienced to match this power <laughs> among us uh, elephant next door. It's almost one to eight on many parameters of power, and it is very difficult to bridge over a period of time. But the size differential is big, but you can overthrow pursuing asymmetric strategies, alliance relationships, as well as a certain fervor in terms of fighting with this big country. I make it an argument that the strategic parity is something that is not understood properly without looking at the civilizational history of South Asia. And that's where I think many people are very blind on why is this competition so intense. 
It is because it is not just for military competition, it's not just for territory, it is also a civilizational, I don't want to call it a religious conflict, a civilizational conflict that, that I am I'm going to argue. The idea is a broad one. It encompasses military and political power, as well as regional influence and civilizational strata, status. The desire for parity has deep roots in South Asia's history. And it can be traced to the demand for a separate Muslim homeland and to regain the lost power of the Muslim minority and the conceptual inheritance of the Mughal rule. This is what I want to make a, a pitch, an argument. You may recall the Mughal rule was uh, the last big empire of South Asia in terms of starting from Uzbekistan, Barbers going down. And then this is how it looked at uh, the time of Aurangzeb. When the British came, British India was, uh, as you know, half, almost half, direct control and the rest uh, 500 odd princely states. And um, so, until 1857, the company was, uh, East India Company was in charge, and as you know, there was a revolt, as the British call it, or first war of independence, as the Indians call it. And this was led by Muslim kings of south uh, of northern India and supported obviously by all sorts of people including Hindus and other soldiers. The British suppressed this revolt ruthlessly. The Indians also fought back in a very ruthless fashion. I don't know any of you have been to a place uh, Lucknow and Lucknow is worth visiting. They have still kept the uh, the remnants of the, the barracks where the British uh, some 600 or so women, children perished there for six months, and the rooms are kept. There's quite an impressive sight of, in terms of the suffering that might have undergone. But that's only one side of the suffering. Uh, I think there's a movie called Mangal Pande. If anybody gets want to see this, this impressive uh, or very important part of South Asian history. So why am I saying this? After the revolt, the Muslim rulers were put down by the British. The Muslim elite was treated as secondary citizens. They started to support the Hindu elite. And this is where the starting of the decline of the Muslim elite rule in South Asia. And so, when Muslim League was demanding a separate homeland, it is not purely for some territorial reason alone, but he was, uh, Jinnah was hoping that he would get almost equal share of South Asia. Well, the population was only 40, 60 or something, if you add all the population together. But the expectation was that they will be treated as equals. That did not happen. Pakistan did not get the entire Punjab or Bengal and of course Kashmir. And that's why Jinnah called it a moth-eaten Pakistan. And the starting of this high level of status conflict began with that division of property. And the initial division of property was also rather unfavorable to Pakistan. You may recall Gandhi had to go on a, a fast unto death and then the, uh, some money was given and then at the end he was assassinated uh, by a Hindu fundamentalist. So this is the historical legacy of Pakistan and then Pakistan is facing this larger uh, entity and the de desire for a conceptual inheritance of the Mughal Empire. Uh, in fact, Jinnah was looking upon as Chen Shah rather than viceregal, rather than a kind of a democratic system. And obviously not an empire was created, but clearly there is that conception in many of the Pakistani writings that I have gone through. A relatively weaker Pakistan had to spend considerable energy in maintaining strategic parity with India. And its inability to achieve long-term strategic goals vis-a-vis India has produced intense frustrations, not only the elite, but also the ordinary people. So I argue that this competition with India is not just for territory, not just for other sources, but it is about uh, status. Status as, as a social identity theory would uh, identify it. It underlines the urge among peoples and nation-states to acquire higher status, that they ought to be treated as co-equals, and this has not been easy to achieve. During the Cold War, it was feasible to a great extent because of the 
U.S. support and India-Pakistan was hyphenated, and now it is up back because of the U.S. changing its strategy towards India and the growth of India since the end of the Cold War and the opening up of India. So the book talks about how these ideas and assumptions uh, historically got evolved and the policy of toward Afghanistan very much drawn from the British colonial ideas of Basra states and buffer states and Afghanistan provides a so-called strategic depth which has deep problems if you look at this as a strategic idea because if you say that you, you need that space to push your troops when the Indians push then what's the role of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are supposed to prevent, deter war. Otherwise you are saying that nuclear weapons are not credible as a source of deterrence. So the, this idea has a lot of problems. I'm not saying that everybody in the elite uh, believe in it, but it is a very deeply held, at least in some of the readings that I can make out of it. So obviously the Indian behavior is very critical here in Kashmir as well as Afghanistan with respect to Pakistan's integrity, etc. Having said all that, ideas are stuck. Ideas are not changing. And when do ideas change? Ideas change, two things happen. One is a middle class, internationally oriented middle class, a civil society and a business class emerge. I'm looking at other cases of where a garrison state was in place. And they look for non-military approaches to problem solving. And civil society should have the power and inclination to demand new or refine institutions and continuously de uh, uh, defend such institutions for democracy and development. As well, I will be talking a little bit about Indonesia, which actually is a fascinating case for Pakistan to emulate if you want to talk about it. And so, this is Pakistan's big challenge. Has Pakistan got the middle class, the business class, the civil society? That will stand for democracy, uh, peace, all those things we talk about in the modern world. <clears throat> Pressures for revolutionary change can also come from outside. Here the U.S. should have been the main source of pressures. Unfortunately, it is the lost opportunities case. The U.S. in contrast with Taiwan and, and Korea put a lot of pressure on those countries, the USA aid, to make structural changes and economic integration with world market. In Pakistan's case, the IMF and World Bank occasionally will come up with some conditionalities, but none was enough to make enough transformative policies. And other fronts like China or Saudi Arabia are using this country for their purposes, military purposes, never put any pressure on them to make any major changes. So that's sort of the set of arguments. Before I go into my comparative uh, aspect of it, I selected two cases, South Korea and Taiwan, that faced intense existential rivalries, and then three Muslim-dominated states that also had a big focus on military and national security, and tried to locate the variation. I don't want to say they are all the same, and actually there are no two similar cases in world politics, in international politics, but there are certain parameters you can see uh, comparative aspects are, uh, are there. South Korea is very interesting. Many of you probably know that South Korea was poorer than Pakistan in the 50s. Indeed, South Korean planners used to visit Karachi to figure out how to run a city. Pakistan was a very, surprisingly, very interesting model for many of these places. And uh, it couldn't last, obviously, for various reasons. <clears throat> and so, what is the difference here? Why did South Korea and Taiwan make it as developmental states? They adopted a number of policies Market access to the patron obviously helped, but the reforms they undertook and they adopted what they call a developmental state approach. Pakistan unfortunately has been a pure national security state and has not been paying attention or equating economic prosperity with defense and security. This elite in these countries came to realize that if they don't modernize, popular discontent will affect their defense. Obviously, they had an absence of a strong rural elite. And one of the things is the Japanese colonialism was more developmental oriented than British colonialism, but less so for democracy. And so they created a bureaucracy already out there 
and the bureaucracy was passionate about development. South Asia's biggest challenge, all the countries, is the bureaucracy is not passionate about development. It's a corrupt bureaucracy, all the countries, and unlike the, the Korean or Taiwanese bureaucracy, that is missing there. And there were authoritarian systems. The U.S. extended deterrence helped, but the Japanese eroded the power of the landed elite. And they assigned considerable importance to education, especially technical education. Both these countries spent more than 6% of their GDP on education from the beginning. Whereas in South Asia, less than 2%, all countries, including India. And India spent 1% on creating IITs and other technical institutions under Nehru's leadership. That is helping now. But 1% of GDP is not enough to bring this entire land uh, population proper education. And Pakistan, unfortunately, has not created many technical institutions. Even today, it really depresses me when I think about where are they going to find jobs for the youth that are coming out of this. Other than the, the elite children, some of them may be sitting here, the point is that the average person cannot get that education without the, the technical institutions in different cities and the, uh, uh, villages of Pakistan. So this lack of emphasis on education, I would encourage you to read this book by Myron Wiener called The Child and the State in India. It's really, it's a little old book. But every man and woman in South Asia must read that book, especially policymakers. Why they didn't put enough money into education? Why they don't even do it today? Which really is puzzling. And that's where the middle class should be demanding, if any, any demand can be made. So the other big difference here is Korea and Taiwan used their connection to America when Vietnam War came they opened up, they trade, traded with the United States, used it as a platform, whereas Pakistan, other than during the IU period, you find have not used that connection they got with the United States for trade. Weapons are the big topic. I must tell you uh, the example I had, I'm in one of these track two meetings with many top Pakistani ex-generals, etc. In Thailand, that's one place where they get visas easily. And I was asked to discuss a paper on balance of power. So everybody's sitting there. I won't name the, some of the top people that Pakistani elite are there. And I said, why is that you don't have a single economist in this group? You know, the, the, the stare on my, their faces on me was unbelievable. They, they kind of ostracized me after that. Said, why are you here? You know, this is a national security discussion. But I said, you know, economics and security are so interlinked in the modern world. And without that, you know, you're missing it out. You know, this is not about weapons. You know, I'm not trying to make your security difficult or anything. It's just that you need an economic understanding, a developmental understanding of this national security problem we face. So export or die was the mantra that the Koreans and the Taiwanese adopted. Pakistan never had except for the EU period. Now maybe slowly changing, but I don't know what is there to export. That's a big challenge, isn't it? Turkey, again, a country that had military rule, four coups, and the elite of obviously adopted a different model. But the clear thing here is they had what you call a semi-developmental state approach, even under the military rule, even under the previous civilian rules. And Turkey began to liberalize and put a lot of money into education. And as a result, Turkey became quite a bit successful than of course, it is a long history there, but the fact of the matter is it is a semi-modernized country. Now, of course, it's going through challenges. Um, civilians were able to assert over the military, but we don't know where it is heading given the way the AKP is looking at freedom of expression, etc. But my most interesting case, and case that is probably relevant to Pakistan, is Indonesia. It's the largest Muslim country, and it has many things in common with Pakistan, some quite a bit of differences. And it did receive assistance from the U.S. and had several internal conflicts and the armed forces were in control. But it is a case of successful transformation, not in every sense, because over time the civilians got rid of the military rule and it became an inclusive democracy. Of course, there's considerable corruption there. Got out of East Timor, pacified many of his internal conflict, especially Aceh. Of course, the tsunami helped, but 
Same thing when you talk about Kashmir, uh, all the, the big floods and uh, earthquakes that has happened in Pakistan. It followed a mild secular strategy for Panchila and it has been able to maintain a kind of integrated strategy. There, there are minority groups in uh, this country that are not facing the same kind of threats as they face in Pakistan. In 2007, the Freedom House declared Indonesia fully free. And one of the most interesting thing about this transformation is the power and the, the, the willingness of the civilians to stand firm against the military's efforts to regain power. And in 2002, after the Bali bombings, the Indonesian government decided that they will never play with the terrorist groups. They are not going to use them as strategic assets. And as a result, uh, it is considered as at least growing and transforming in a different path. So a lot of things that if you are studying, of course, successful models, perhaps this is one thing that leaders can look into. What did they do? They are also a semi-developmental state. Doesn't mean that, as I mentioned, there's a lot of corruption and all those issues are there. But it's a huge country, but it has tremendous potential for that country. I see that it will be a model if they do certain things rightfully, right, right ways over the years to come. Now, one can predict these things uh, accurately. Egypt, on the other hand, is following Pakistan's path. These are the two countries where you find the land aristocracy in control and the military now back in control. And the U.S. has been giving them uh, money. Of course, one difference is to maintain peace with uh, Israel. Moderate foreign policy up to a point. But the point is the domestic structures and the expatriate money they depend on this is another country that could have done very well if they had proper land reforms because they have all these allies. U.S. and the Western countries are sympathetic to them. But somehow the transformation is not happening. I've taken quite a bit of time. Let me conclude by making a few general observations about war and state making, state building today. There is a criticism I get that time is the element here. Pakistan has been in existence for 66 years, whereas European countries took 400 years to get where they are today. I argue that that's a very difficult argument to make. It is not, no guarantee that time will bring change. Why? You look at the countries that became prosperous during the past three, four decades. It took China two decades from Deng Xiaoping's reforms to achieve whatever it did. And China before that was not going anywhere. It would have been a basket case had it not put any reforms. So that time is compressed. Look at all the East Asian states. The time has been compressed for development in modern world. It is not the ancient times when time was needed. And you look at the Latin American states that have been in existence for over 150 years. But very few of them have become successful states, showing that Time is no guarantee. It's the policies, strategies, how the elite play with its conditions that make a big difference in the modern world. So Pakistan's biggest problem or challenge has been that it has not become a developmental state. Pakistan has not allowed or encouraged its younger generation to globalize and benefit from economic liberalization, as has been the case in China and to a limited extent in India. They're not given the necessary education, especially in science and technology. Pakistan has therefore missed out the post-war, post-Cold War era economic boom. And unfortunately, it is going to miss out if it doesn't change its strategy especially the benefits of globalization associated with greater international trade, investment, and mobility of workforce globally. None of the economic or political crises Pakistan faces has been strong enough to move the society into a different pathway. Now, we may say that the Indian growth rate is coming down and all that, but you may recall in 91, when the Indians faced a major economic disaster, they had to collect all their gold from the Reserve Bank of India took on a Boeing plane and the plane took, uh, came to London to put as collateral for one day's, uh, they only had one day's money to pay off the debt services. This was a major uh, blow on Indian pride and it really helped them to change that policy. Of course, right now they are not following it through, hopefully this current government may change that uh, strategy. 
But whatever it is, crises are important turning points for countries. No one ever would allow Pakistan to use the crisis as opportunities for change. Major transformation is necessary in the way the Pakistani elite and civil society and expatriate community, by the way, think of security and development. They cannot wait for all territorial disputes with India and Afghanistan to be resolved before they adopt a trade developmental state approach. Because that's like giving the veto power to the enemies. Pakistan can do both. I'm not saying Pakistan should give up its claim on territory that it believes it belongs to them. But you can't put all the eggs into this basket until the neighbors become generous, we will become, we won't change our strategy. It is important that the other countries, the United States especially, needs to help this country not by giving more money in weapons, but by engaging them as a trading partner. And this is where the American policy has been, and the Western policy has been rather weak. And I think they need to focus on infrastructure, and China especially. This is a big puzzle. Why the Chinese don't give enough? Why, why the Chinese haven't made this a courier? Well, the Chinese I talked to have their own reasons, and we can talk about it. But I think the time has come for South Asia to think about regional connectivity, regional integration, and India can definitely help by not securitizing water disputes or repressive policies in Kashmir and open up the Indian economy to Pakistanis in an unequal way. That means that they have to get everything reciprocal. Of course, one idea that could be developed is how to use the water resource of the region for all the countries together. <coughs> now, let me conclude by saying that I read Pakistani English media as whenever I can. And I must say, there is considerable writing going on, very courageous men and women writing. Uh, official discourse sometimes reflects this thinking. But Pakistan's trajectory is very difficult to predict. <coughs> and that trajectory will determine whether you have peace of stability for not only Pakistanis, but for two billion South Asians, and to some extent global security in the years to come. So I'm going to stop there. I'm not sure you have a lot of questions here, and uh, we can talk some of them. And luckily, I have an economist sitting next to me who has studied Pakistan so well. And the book is there, too. It goes into a lot of details in 200 pages in my own little ways of understanding this very complex country. And I think it deserves more than... And by the way, the title was the editor of OUP decided. And my title was War and State Building Pakistan in Comparative Perspective. My OUP editor said that will sell 20 copies. So that's how it is. <laughs> but I, it's not a pejorative way, but I guess it, it talks a lot. So thank you for listening. And uh, I'm very interested in getting your opinions on some of the things I said. I'm sure there is always disagreement and, you know, Gracias.